In this episode, we will discuss experiences with fellowships. A fellowship is a unique opportunity that provides both scholarship funding and various professional work and enrichment opportunities for a specific group of students at various colleges and universities. Today, you will hear from both a current fellow, Remy, and an alumni, Rodrigo, from the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship at Harvard's Kennedy School. The U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship brings together a diverse and talented group of emerging leaders who are committed to working to reduce disparities in their communities through efforts in public policy, education, economic development, healthcare, immigration, social entrepreneurship, and a variety of other fields. Now, let's meet our guests. We begin today's conversation on fellowships with Ramey, a current fellow at the U.S. Latino Leadership Fellowship. Hi, Ramey. How are you? Hi, Cody. How are you? I'm good. Good, good. Thank you for being here. We so appreciate you um, being a part of the podcast. Great. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, Ramey, before we get started, I would love for you to have an opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. Yes, yeah, so so I'm Ramey. I a policy student at the Harvard Kennedy School and a US Latinx Leadership Fellow in its Center for Public Leadership. And I am an immigrant from the Dominican Republic, um, grew up in New York City and attended elementary, middle school, high school there. And more recently I've worked in college access and retention and at the intersection of human rights and higher ed, as well as immigration policy and advocacy. Great. You mentioned before that you are a first-generation student, and I wondered, you know, when did you first know you were a first-generation student, and what were your initial thoughts or reaction? Yeah, so college was just generally a big mystery to me. I did not have anyone in my family who had attended, and and there wasn't a clear-cut path created for the student's at the high school that I attended, I went to a very economically and racially segregated high school in New York City where almost every student was Black or Latinx or both. And the overwhelming majority were low income and also would be first generation college students where they able to make the leap and, and make it a college. And so I think growing up, I just didn't have anyone around who had gone to college with the exception of teachers and professionals that interacted with me. And so there wasn't that awareness. And I think because my parents, my mother and father completed eighth and sixth grade, respectively, in in our home country, they couldn't really navigate the school system here because of language barriers. And so I didn't have a lot of awareness until I spoke with a college counselor at my high school who provided. So I just didn't have any awareness until I reached high school and my college counselor began to work with me on the college process. And so I I think in addition to all the overt barriers, I began to understand also that my immigration status was going to be an issue in going to college. And so I began to understand the implications of that and how getting to and through college would be much harder for me because there wasn't a clear path on how to get there. Right. Now, today, we're here to talk about fellowships. So that's the topic of today's episode. And in your own words, can you define or describe what a fellowship is? 
Yeah, so a fellowship is typically a merit-based award, but not necessarily. And it can, but doesn't necessarily include funding. And usually there is a component in addition to funding um, to focus on personal and professional development and community building. So it's taking some of the passions of the fellows and honing and harnessing those to propel them to make change in, in whichever way they, they intend uh, in society. Awesome. And when did you first learn about or hear about what a fellowship was? So my first time learning about a fellowship was when I was an undergraduate at Hunter College in, in New York City. And there in my final semester, I was an Avocast and Grove Fellow. And, and the goal of that fellowship was to provide mentorship, professional development, and some financial awards to fellows who were committed to public service policy and human rights. And I think that that was my first interaction with a fellowship application and with with what a fellowship meant. Right. And can you describe or explain the process um, that one goes through when applying for a fellowship? So there's typically an application process that includes a lot of the demographic information. And in addition to that, you would submit essays about your goals and passions and struggles and heartbreaks. And and typically, in addition to that, there may be an interview. So in my case, I was uh, my fellowship applications for graduate school were connected to my graduate school applications. And what would you say was the most challenging part of the process for you um, as an applicant for fellowships? I think the most difficult part was the deep introspection that makes for compelling writing. I think in this case, it meant reflecting on my life, thinking about where I come from, where I want to go, uh, and what impact I want to have. I think that that requires a lot of self-knowledge that can be uncomfortable. And it also requires thinking very deeply about our heartbreaks, our fears, and, you know, figuring out what you want to do for the rest of your life is no small feat. And it may have meant that the writing process for my essays was very emotional. Yeah, that's a challenging part of the process to talk so openly about potential barriers or challenges that you've experienced. Did you include anyone in that process? Did you ever, you know, talk to friends or colleagues or family members about the application or or some of the writings that you included? Yeah, so I was very lucky to have the help of a fellowship advisor at my undergraduate institution who was helping me uh, draft my essays. But I think that it was really helpful to be able to explain my story to different audiences to sort of see what they were responding to. And so I think that conversations with friends and family sometimes what's helpful. And sometimes it wasn't an outright, can you look at my essay? But perhaps just a conversation about brainstorming or particular aspects of the the essay. Awesome. Exactly. And what motivated you or, or potentially who motivated you at the end of the day to really apply for the fellowship opportunity? I think that a big factor for me was that uh, coming from a low-income family and um, even though I had been working for a few years, I think funding was a big consideration on whether I would be able to attend graduate school and, and which one I would choose. And so I think that that was the initial motivation, but I think that 
in applying to some of the prestigious institutions that I ended up applying to, I think it was very helpful to have the support and encouragement of my fellowship advisor in reminding me that I was capable and worthy of getting a fellowship and that I fit the description of what they were expecting of applicants in a way that sometimes because of messaging and conditioning, it's really hard to see yourself as as inhabiting all of the characteristics that fellowships outline as as being part of their requirement. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that you mentioned kind of, you know, seeing yourself um, within the scope of being a low-income student. I think that also sometimes students being in the scope of being a first-generation student sometimes um, maybe don't see themselves in various arenas, right? Or maybe see themselves fitting in, so to speak, in, in, in different areas. And, you know, that's a great point. And it leads me to wonder, in your own words, how has being a first-generation student or maybe a, a first-generation low-income student, how has that impacted your identity within like being in a fellowship? Yeah, I think that in contrast to my undergraduate institution or my high school, I think being at Harvard, being at the Center for Public Leadership makes me hyper aware of my first generation to attend college status because there are so few of us and and it becomes more pronounced. I think that, for example, this can be evidenced through a recent talk that I attended where an economist advised a room of students to, you know, really get to know people who are poor to be able to like decide which policies are going to be best for them. And because there's a lot of overlap between first generation to attend and low income students, I think that illustrates some sort of erasure of the few in the room who end up here. And I think it's evidence that there's a problem when spaces exclude us to this extent where it becomes, where something like this becomes a very novel idea. I think we have to be really honest about that problem in order to fix it. But I think that that in terms of identity, it just became more pronounced. And I was just, I, I, I just become more hyper aware of the fact that I am first, a first generation student. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about so many times when it comes to policy change or any sort of large scale decisions, having a seat at the table, right? And so if people at the table um, don't necessarily know of the barriers or challenges to marginalized populations, sometimes the greater need for those those populations can be maybe forgotten about or, or passed aside. So I think that's really awesome that you, that you mentioned that specifically. So thank you for that. So going back to fellowships, I know you mentioned the application process, but were there any specific requirements that you had to meet? You know, obviously there were the steps of the application, but um, what were the requirements for you in terms of being able or eligible to apply? Yes. So for the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship, the first requirement is admission to the Harvard Kennedy School. And so that's a separate application process with testing and essays and and, and resume and, and things like that. And then in addition to that, for the fellowship, you submit 
an additional essay outlining a topic that you are passionate about as it pertains to reducing disparities in U.S. Latinx communities. And you write about your experiences as it relates to this topic, but also as it relates to your leadership and your public service aspirations. And after that is submitted, that's you can sort of frame that as being that additional round. Then there's a round of interviews with the with the program managers at the center who ask a lot about your aspirations as a as a rising public service leader. Great. Now, how did you feel going into the interview stage and how did you kind of prepare or feel going into that? I think that during the application process, I struggle with believing that I should be applying or that I would meet the requirement or that I was the qualified applicant. And I think that that sort of imposter syndrome that a lot of first generation college students experience is very real and sometimes creeps up in moments when you least expect it. So I think going into the interview, I felt a lot of that. And sometimes what I do whenever I'm really nervous about that is just like play some music that will hype me up, play some Kendrick or some Cardi B or whatever may work in the moment. And also just reminding myself that I just needed to do my best and I needed to take the advice of others and and the learnings in that moment and just trust the process, be vulnerable, take those lessons and do my best. And after the interview was over, just be able to like let it go um, because everything in my power had already been done. So it's a lot of the internal dialogue of like, I belong here. I deserve to have gotten this interview. I am deserving of getting support to follow my aspirations. And those reminders are really helpful. Absolutely. You know, and we've talked so much about imposter syndrome on this podcast. And I always tell my first generation students that I work with, you know, having been a first generation student, that belief is a really powerful word, (laughs) having belief in yourself. And however you find that, you know, whether, like you said, it's listening to music to encourage you or anything, I think that that's yes, believing that you can do it is is a lot of pieces of the puzzle. So All right. Well, continuing on, you talked about how the fellowship is not just funding. So it's not just financial funding. What other benefits would you like to highlight or do you think is really of note in a fellowship structure? Yeah. So I think that in addition to the funding, the goal is to create a community of like-minded individuals who have similar goals who can bounce ideas off each other, who can network, who can connect each other to opportunities, who can create a safe space for personal development and growth. So one thing that is a component of the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship is that fellows can lead their own workshops, for example, for other fellows. So if somebody has a particular interest or talent in op-ed writing and they realize that others have that, they can lead a workshop on that. If somebody's really good at online branding and presence, they can lead a workshop for that. So I think that that sort of like community of support is really important, especially if, as I mentioned, oftentimes you're one of so of many of the few in when it comes to identity because of you know the history of exclusion in higher ed institutions 
I think it's really helpful to have that community to be able to do that. But it's also just like, it's really empowering to be in a space of a community who just, who is rooting for you and who is looking out for you and making sure that you're okay, making sure that you have a space outside of classes to explore your interests and and your passion. That's awesome. And I think, you know, as first generation students, we're all looking for that community feel. So that's, that's really cool that you uh, were able to kind of highlight that as a part of um, the many benefits of being in a fellowship. Going back to the applying discussion, when you were applying, do you remember having a mindset or knowing of how competitive this process was? I know you had to obviously get entrance to other you know, other first steps and prerequisites to be eligible to apply. But do you remember having an understanding of how competitive this application process was? And did you even know anyone else who may have been also applying? Yeah, I didn't know of anyone who was applying for a fellowship uh, or who at the time was applying to the Kennedy School. I, prior to applying, knew one person who had attended But during the application process, I didn't know anyone. And I also did know that such a small percentage of students get funding, something close to about 10%, but I I don't want to misquote the numbers. And so I think that even and even within that, I think that there there were other sort of categories that made a fellowship more competitive. And so I did have a sense, especially because of the extent of support that the fellowship was providing, that it was very competitive. And I think that I almost approached it as if it was going to be a no, but it was sort of like a protection mechanism where I was just striving to do my best. But almost assuming that it would be a no so that I could save myself from the disappointment. But that's that's another thing is that I think one of the lessons is to not reject yourself. It's not the job of you as a first generation college student to say no to yourself and you say no by not applying to something because of fear of rejection. So rejection may come, rejection is part of life, but it is, I think for me, it was just like, it was not my job to reject myself from the opportunity. And I wasn't going to be taking that role and and applying it to myself. So it was about taking the risk, even if it was competitive. Totally. And I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I say a lot of times to students, not limiting oneself, right? Like we're, we're in the control of a lot of things and sometimes students want to limit themselves and maybe they don't think or expect certain things, but simply just applying, right? Throwing your name into the ring um, is, is such a powerful step. So that's great. Is there anything else that you wish you knew back when you applied? I think that in addition to recognizing that even though these labels can be intimidating, that I needed to sort of believe in myself, because I think that, you know, believing in the power you bring and the valuable, valuable experiences that you may bring because of your identity is, is really important just when it comes to changing the way our, our society looks. But I think that the reason you are first generation to attend is very, very likely due to a history of racist, classist, 
exclusion. And so when you read terms on an application that say, we're looking for the best and brightest, know that that has historically been a very narrow definition of who could be those things and that you are those things. And it sounds, it may sound cliche, but I think that's a really hard, that's, that's a continuous thing to remind yourself. I also would say that vulnerability is a strength. I think when you're thinking about how to tell your story to others that you'll be meeting for the first time or, or how to put your story on paper, I think that our stories are unique only to the extent that we're willing to risk being vulnerable. I think that vulnerability in my essays and in my interviews and the risk that I took about my fears and my goals perhaps made it a more memorable conversation. I think getting honest and getting specific can be hard if um, for people who have experienced trauma, but I also think that reframing vulnerability as a strength uh, can be really helpful in how you tell your story and how you tell others about your your goals. Yeah, totally. Now, vulnerability, I, I yes, I say this with a lot of the students that I work with as well, and it can really lead to some powerful self-actualization or some powerful discussions. So that is, yes, co-signing that for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes. So we've talked about kind of the process of applying for fellowships, the various benefits, the lessons learned. But now, you know, I'd really love to talk a little bit about where we go from here, you know, where you see this this opportunity taking you you know, we hear the term change makers a lot. And it sounds like this um, fellowship, uh, fellowships can really offer you that ability to be that change maker in, in, in several different communities. So my first question in this area would be, you know, how do you believe the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship has, how do you plan to leverage your leadership abilities and skills that you've gained through this experience? to best impact underserved or marginalized communities? I want to be able to improve policies for low-income Black and brown communities. And I think I would love to do that across um, education and immigration and criminal justice systems. Um, and I think that being surrounded by the community that I have in the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship and the other fellowships at large has given me the confidence to be a better advocate. And I think that that was one of my goals in thinking about my graduate school aspirations was uh, I wanted to be a bolder advocate. I wanted to be a more honest advocate. I wanted to bring the voices of the people from whom I've learned so much into spaces that I recognize we've been excluded from. And I think that policy change, it can be defined in many different ways and change making can be defined in many different ways. But the way that I like to think about it is that uh, nothing is should be considered meaningful, meaningful change unless the people who are directly impacted can confirm it. But also that a lot of the change that is sometimes lab labeled as transformative can be merely symbolic. And I think that having 
more representative policymakers and more representative policymaking can counter the fact that a lot of change is symbolic because I, I don't think that we should be letting policymakers get away with not doing what they need to do for communities. But I also think that people in affected communities should be the ones changing policy and should be the ones getting credit for a lot of the policies that we've been changing. Absolutely. And, you know, you've talked about a few uh, causes that are super near and dear to your heart causes and, and initiatives that you're really passionate about, education, immigration, um, criminal justice. How do you think, you know, specifically or, or maybe um, generally, how do you think these causes and support or change, substantial change for these causes could be addressed through your work within the fellowship? Yeah, so I think that for addressing inequity in immigration, education, wealth and income, all of which I also see as falling under the umbrella of racial justice, I think that it's really helpful to learn from people who've been doing this work. And I think a lot of the fellows are coming from different policy areas, but have a very but have a focus on equity and justice. And so you have students who are also at the medical school or students who have a background in health policy or criminal justice policy. And we're all in that room thinking about how we can potentially make society more just and more equitable. And so I think that I think that's one of the beauties of graduate school is that people are coming with a lot of work experience uh, many times. And that work experience, coupled with the lived experience, coupled with being in rooms, people who have been doing this work for, for a long time can help us see what hasn't worked uh, and why it hasn't worked and sort of narrow our focus that way. Great. And, you know, a big question, <laughs> you will be a Harvard graduate and I'm curious what does that mean to you truly at the end of the day? Yeah, I think that part of understanding the prestige that can be associated with an institution like Harvard means that we have to be really honest about what creating that prestige entailed. And by definition, I think prestige thrives on the history of exclusion. And that exclusion has been the exclusion of people that I aim to work with and on behalf of as I move on in my career. And that exclusion has been that of a lot of Black, Black and Latinx students, like the ones in my high school, for example. And so part of my responsibility is to highlight the brilliance of, of the communities that I, that I, part of my responsibility is to highlight the, the brilliance of the communities that I stand for and uh, highlight their brilliance in the places that I have either the privilege or the responsibility to inhabit currently. Awesome. Going off of that, what hopes do you have for future cohorts of fellows, for the students that go to your high school, for future first-generation students? You know, what are some of the hopes you have for, for the future? of our society? Yes, that's a very big question. And I like to think about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that we need to have an ideal, right? We need to have an ideal of what society should look like, should look like. Otherwise, there's no way of measuring success. 
And I think that for me, the ideal society is the one that we would choose if we didn't know where we would end up in that society, right? If we didn't know our race, our gender, our class, and all the other identities that unfortunately determine which opportunities you get currently. And so I think for uh, first-generation college students and for future fellows, I hope that they are able to have support and financial freedom and faith and trust in their talents, in their brilliance, in their ability to create change, in their boldness, in their courage, and to be able to claim to claim their space. I think we all deserve to explore our passions. I think that that is uh, key to building a democratic and free society. And so I hope that they are all able to reflect on what that means for them uh, and to have the financial and community support to get there. That's great. Yeah. And that gets at the heart of just so many things. I mean, you know, we always sometimes ask students or, or really anyone big picture questions, you know, what could you do? What would you do if money was not a factor or if location was not a factor or, you know, like the different potential barriers for students? So that's that's a great future forward thinking. And I look forward to to getting there someday. So that's super, super awesome. So, Ramey, as we finish up today's interview and discussion, I would just like to thank you for being here. But also, before you go, I would love if you would be interested in sharing any final messages, tips, suggestions, or words of uh, words of inspiration for our first generation audience. I would just reiterate that when an application says they're looking for the best and brightest, there is no reason why that can't be you. And so, again, don't reject yourself. I think accepting your abilities is the first step towards having others support you in your path. Awesome. That's a great message to leave off on. So thank you, Ramey, so much for being a part of this um, discussion. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, Cody. And thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Continuing our conversation on fellowships, we now bring you Rodrigo. Hi, Rodrigo. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you for being here. We're super excited to have you on the podcast to share your experiences. So, Rodrigo, before we get started, you know, today we're here to talk about fellowships. But before we get started on that topic, if you can please introduce yourself to our audience, that would be great. Of course, I'd love to. My name is Rodrigo Dorador, and I am originally from Tepic, Nayarit, Mexico, and I was there for about nine years before I migrated to to Phoenix, Arizona when I was nine years old and, and settled there. I had the opportunity to go to a public elementary school in South Phoenix, and and there I I had I met an amazing educator whose name is Chad Geston, and he was a Teach for America teacher. So you can kind of get a sense that I went to one of these public schools that was being targeted because it was by Teach for America because it was a very low performing school, and 
And, you know, from my memory, I could say, yes, it was it was not one of the best public schools, but that educator, Chad Gaston, really, really helped uh, our class a lot. And, uh, and me especially, I think when I came to the U.S., I, I was undocumented. And so my family just had no idea of even my mom didn't even know if I could go to school. So for the first two or three months of school, I was just at home or followed her to work because she didn't know if she, that she could enroll me in school. But then she talked to some of her fam, some of her friends that she made and found that, oh, yes, like Rodrigo and his little sister can go to school. So she enrolled us in school. And so just that whole experience was very new to us. And, and you know, my, my mom had this dream to help us. She crossed the border to ensure that we could have a better future. And so she engaged with, with my Teach for America teacher, Chad Guest. And, you know, he... He was really kind and, and offered to, to help. And over the course of two or three years that, that I was his student, he kind of noticed that I had a lot of potential and, and helped me to apply to one of the best high schools in, in Arizona. It's a private Jesuit school in, in North Phoenix. And so I applied and actually got accepted and, and received a scholarship to go there. And, and it was an amazing experience being there. At, at this high school where there was a lot of resources, great teachers, and it was just a very, very different experience. It was a big culture shock going to a private institution where it was mostly white students, whereas before I had been at a public institution where everyone was Latino or Black. Uh, there were very few white students. And so when I was there in Arizona, there there was a, a law that passed that that said that undocumented students couldn't pay in-state tuition to go to college. So we had to pay 400% more to, to go to school than, than students that had been born in the U.S. or that were residents of the U.S. And, and I just remember I, I really lost all hope, but I was able to, to get a scholarship to go to a, another private college. And, and that's kind of how I made it uh, to college. And, and, and it was a, a tough tough high school experience trying to figure everything out but I'm really glad for my parents and my educators because they really supported me and and helped me along the way both like emotionally and with a lot of tips and tricks of how to get uh, into college and then I attended Santa Clara University on the Hurtado scholarship kind of like a fellowship and uh, and after that I, I graduated and studied economics and then I worked in the education nonprofit sector for a while until I decided it was time to apply to graduate school, went to and applied for the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and was accepted. And I also applied for another fellowship there that's called the U.S. Latinx Leadership Fellowship. Uh, I was able to receive uh, that fellowship, and and now I'm I I went to graduate school. I graduated, and now I'm I'm back home, and I'm really excited about the next steps. And yes, I'd, I'd love to talk about about the U.S. Latinx uh, Leadership Fellowship with you and kind of break it down and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. And, you know, I'm curious, when did you first realize you were a first-generation college student? And do you remember any of your initial thoughts or reactions around that identity? Yeah, definitely. I think the, that that specific phrase, like first generation, I don't think that actually I actually learned that till I was in the process of actually applying to different scholarships and colleges. Uh, and it, I really first realized it 
realized that I was a first-generation student in the U.S. when my parents and I attended a college application workshop that was being hosted by my high school. So they cover FAFSA, they cover how to, the college admissions process. And the workshop was in English, and my parents don't speak English, so they could not understand anything. <laughs> and it was really only up to me to handle the process. So that's kind of when I realized that, oh my God, I'm kind of doing this on my own because my parents, you know, they don't have any specific tips or tricks on the specifics of the process of applying to college. They had always wanted me to go to college. And even though they studied uh, in Mexico, it was very difficult for them to kind of hold my hand through the process here in the U.S. And then when you add to that the fact that, you know, my parents didn't understand English, they didn't understand the process, you know, I was undocumented, and that meant that I didn't have access to financial aid or the FAFSA or in-state tuition, and it made things so much harder. And and for me, that this was one of the situations that actually helped me to get to a point where I knew I had to reach out to my teachers and my college counselors to tell them about my immigration status. And, you know, just to give you a sense, this is like senior year like deep into the fall semester already, like college applications are doing like two months or something like that. And, you know, for the first time, I'm kind of reaching out to my college counselors who, who probably at that time had always thought like, why is the student not reaching out to us? They're like a great student. You know, they do their homework. They, 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 they get, they're doing well. They're getting by. Why are they not like reaching out to us? So I finally reach out to them and that's when they say, okay, like, thank you for letting us know. Now, now we know how we can help you. And from there, you know, they started they started helping me identify colleges that would be friendly to undocumented students. They started sending me information about scholarships and it just it just made a, a huge difference. The fact that, you know, they they were there for me. And specifically like one of the, the ways that I was able to find out about Santa Clara University is because the high school where I went and that university, they're both Jesuit schools. So a lot of times they recruit the, the university recruits students from that high school. And and that's how I was able to find out about the school because one day my counselor just made me go to one of their information sessions that they hosted at the high school. And that's the first time that that I met one of their admissions counselors. And they talked to me and, and they said, you know, no matter where you were born or anything like that, or your immigration status, like you can apply to this school and there's resources. And I'm just like very, very glad that my high school, you know, had counselors that, that were helpful. And, and I'm glad that, that, you know, like that situation made me kind of want, like reach out to them, to be honest, because that's one of the things that, that that I learned very early on is that I had to reach out to people to get support because I, I hear I thought my situation was really unique and, and it wasn't. There's a lot of other students that, that are that went through the same thing that I'm that I went through that are going through it. And I'm really glad that I opened up to my teachers and they were able to help. That's great. So now uh, we want to discuss the fellowship. And you were a fellow, you're an alumni of, as you mentioned, the US Latinx Leadership Fellowship at Harvard. And I'm curious, you know, going back to your fellowship days, you know, what initially motivated you to even apply for the fellowship? No, that, that's a really good question. And, and what really motivated me was I had been working in the nonprofit education space for about six years. 
And I had been working as a program manager. So I was implementing different programs and events and outreach to students based on policies that had been set by either the state legislature or another type of agency. And and a lot of times I, I would find myself disagreeing with some of these policies or the way that it was run. Uh, you know, sometimes I felt like, you know, this is not enough in, enough for the communities that we're serving. This is too little. This could be done better. And, you know, I, I wish that, that the individuals that are making these decisions at the higher level could, could listen to me and, and to my coworkers because I think we'd have amazing ideas to share with them. So obviously it was very, very <laughs> confident in the way that I felt. And, and when I looked to, to these higher levels where people have more power to make policies, I saw that, that a lot of times there was not a lot of Latinos in those positions of power. And I felt like whoever was there could be doing a better job. And, and you know, I, I decided, you know, I think that I could be one of these individuals. And if I study policy and government, I could be in those positions one day and I could represent and be more representative of the communities that, that these policies are looking to, to serve. And so that's what, what motivated me. And to give just a concrete example, I was working in Phoenix and we, we were working on supporting students apply to FAFSA. So I created an app that would help our staff at my organization better communicate and target students at the high school district to get them to apply for, for financial aid and to, to coach them through it, so to set up appointments and the like. And one of the cool things that we were able to, to create was we created a data sharing agreement between the district and the organization and that really helped us to have access to the students and really target students that that were doing well in school, but who might not have been thinking that they wanted to go to college. And and it was an amazing experience because we were able to see every student, their GPA, and target all these students that maybe they just hadn't thought about college or maybe they had applied for FAFSA, but they didn't know there was a specific scholarship that applied to them. And I really liked the fact that that we were able to have access to that data. And the way that that happened is because the superintendent of that district, he was okay with sharing information because he knew it was going to help his students who would otherwise not get that type of support. And, and the interesting thing about this superintendent is that he was my Teach for America teacher when I was in, in elementary. And so I knew that he, you know, he had a different, a different perspective of how to support students. And that was kind of the moment where I said, you know, if my teacher can do it, he can become one of these decision makers and, and make things better for his students, then I should be able to do that too. And for me, that that's what really motivated me and said, okay, I've been thinking about applying for this fellowship. Let me stop thinking about it and let me actually schedule some time and put it on my calendar and start writing this application. Yeah, and oftentimes that's the first step is just pushing yourself to do it, pushing yourself to do it, taking that first step. And it's awesome that you you decided to do it and that you had such great motivation behind that. So that's awesome. We've talked to some about what this fellowship has done and for you. And sometimes it's the financial aspect. There are financial benefits, but fellowships are more than just the financial aspect, right? So what are some of the other benefits or ways in which the fellowship helped you the most? Definitely. I think in one respect, it was the support of other fellows that come from a similar background that are also 
you Latinx or identify as Latinx, and and we would basically have a weekly meeting every Wednesday, and we'd meet for dinner and and do activities, do workshops, and things like that. And just for one, it was really helpful to have a community at at a institution like Harvard that just knew where I was coming from. I think you know it's a culture shock when you go to to private schools because people have a they carry themselves in a different way their their experience their lived experiences are different and so they kind of live the world a little bit differently just like anyone would that maybe comes from a different line of work or a different school or a different state and so it was great to have a a community of people that you know where I could express myself just the way that I wanted to sometimes even in Spanish or tell jokes in Spanish and they would get it because you know they're from the same background. So that was that was really important for me because I felt like no matter how I was doing that week, I knew that on Wednesday I would get to have a sit down in the dinner with with my friends and my community of of peers that identify as Latinx and first generation and that was just amazing throughout the two years that I was there. So I really liked that. And then like you mentioned, you know, they the fellowship also provides opportunities for for mentorship, for networking. They pro in in not, this specific fellowship they also provide uh workshops uh around leadership. And so I just remember every other week we would go to different workshops. One of my favorite ones was when we had to do a presidential simulation so we simulated this scenario where we were in the white house and and we were in a military situation and and it was a lot of fun because some of the individuals that were helping to run the simulation had worked at the white house were members of the military they were former generals that worked with some former presidents and it was just really memorable because the entire time I was in shock that this was even happening and even though it was a simulation it felt so real because the general he brought his uniform and i just remember all the leadership lessons that i learned in that scenario like really stand out to me today like i remember them very vividly because it was a it was a scenario that we played out versus some of the things i learned in class that i to be honest can't really remember so i really like that about the mentorship that it really got us out of our comfort zone and and taught us things in new ways. On the other hand, it was also not easy. Uh, so as I mentioned uh, earlier, this is the first time that they had given out this type of fellowship to Latinx students. And we, so me and the other two people that have the fellowship, we were the first ever people to have this fellowship. And so it was a little bit uh, tougher to not have direct access to mentors or alumni, or even any sort of stories of like, what have previous fellows have done? Like it was all very new, but thankfully through the fellowship, there are people that manage the the fellowship. They manage the program. They make sure that there's workshops for us that we're building community. And I just remember becoming very attached to our program manager and really building community with her throughout the two years. And that was also a really great benefit of, of being in the fellowship. I feel like, you know, she's going to be someone that, that I continue to connect with like over the coming years. So it was really great. And yeah, and then they also, and then part of, as part of the fellowship, you also have access to all the alumni that have been part of the school who, who have also been fellows. And they even have like this mobile app where you can connect with them. And I also think that that's really cool. I've 
reached out to one alumni in the past and was able to connect with them to talk about affordable housing. And, and it's really cool just to know there's people out there that have had a similar experience. They had a fellowship and I can just reach out to them and say, hey, I was a fellow too. But even though I was a fellow like five years after you, we have this thing in common. Can I talk to you? That's a really cool thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. And what were some lessons that you've learned from fellowship experiences from applying that you would like to provide, you know, other students who might be listening right now who might be interested in fellowships or similar programs? What are some lessons learned that you would offer to them about your experience? Definitely. When I was in in high school and I was having like pretty much, I would call it a... <laughs> an emotional meltdown. It was just, I was in this place where, where I was in the process of applying to, to colleges and, and scholarships. And, and there was not a lot of scholarships that I qualified for because of my immigration status. And I was very, very freaked out that I wouldn't get accepted into colleges. even And even if I did get accepted, would they even want to fund me? And and I was I got very lucky because I applied to a lot of different colleges and there was one specific college in Seattle, Washington, Seattle University that accepted me and sent me the first financial aid offer I had ever received. So imagine this undocumented student going to the mail, picking up this huge envelope from Seattle University, opening it up and it says, Hey, we'd love to have you at your at our university. We loved your your personal statement, and we want you to come here. So we'll pay $10,000 out of your $30,000 tuition. And my immediate thing was like, oh my God, this feels so amazing. Like somebody's actually willing to to take a gamble on me. And then immediately saying like, man, like I don't have $20,000. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I, I went to my teachers. I went to Mr. Johnson the next day and I told him, hey, look, I got this package from Seattle University, and they said they're willing to pay for one third of my tuition. And he said, that's awesome. And he said, tell them that that you'll go there if they pay for your whole tuition. And I said, what? He's like, yeah, just, just send them an email and ask them, would they be willing to pay for your entire college if you go to their school? And I was shocked. I, I asked, like, are you, I was kind of in my mind thinking, are you sure? Like, are you sure they're going to like, they're already giving me $10,000. Like, they're not going to give me more. And he just was adamant. He's like, you have nothing to lose. You know, like, the worst they can say is no. Go and ask if they'll pay your whole way. And he said, you know, matter, matter of fact, just get your computer out and, 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 and type this email out. And so I typed out the email. Hey, thank you so much for the offer. I really enjoyed it. And then he he told me, like, explain your situation, like, let them know why you're asking what you're asking for. And I said, you know, I come from a low income family. I'm undocumented. I don't have access to financial aid or blah, 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 blah. I would love to go to your university. Could you, you know, could could you pay for my entire tuition? So I sent the email and then I, I waited for what seemed like forever. And about two weeks later, they sent me another huge mail on the package. And they said, yes, we would like to offer you a full tuition scholarship so that you can come to Seattle University. And I said, what? 
And I went to talk to Mr. Johnson and they said, how did you know this was going to happen? And he told me, here's the thing. Like a lot of students that are applying to college think that they're the ones that are pursuing the schools. But a lot of the times it's the other way around. The, the schools are looking for students. They're looking for talent that, that they can get into their universities. And they're willing to support great students financially if they end up going to their schools because they know that they're going to make the campus a better place to learn and they're going to create a better community for all the other first generation students. That's why. And I feel like ever since then, I've, I've always tried to convey in one way or another kind of that, that story because it just, it shocked me as a, as a 17 year old at the time that I should ask for more money. (laughs) I have, I have so many conversations like that with the students and families I work with. So that's that's a great point, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Awesome. And we've talked a lot about the fellowship and your experience, but I'd love to talk about kind of what you've been able to do and what you will be able to continue to do post-fellowship. And so I'd love to know, you know, how do you plan to leverage the leadership skills and abilities that you, you know, really honed in on while in the fellowship to best serve underserved or marginalized communities. Definitely. So the work that I'll be going into deals with developing affordable housing and and this is a it's a very unique process because there's a part of this process that is done usually by a private company, but then there's also a part of the process that involves the government and the community. So everyone in a way has a say in terms of what gets built, what is it going to look like? Is there going to be like a community pool? Is there going to be places to walk? Is there going to be bike racks? Like different, you know, how big should the rooms be? There's a lot of decisions that are up to the community, the the government and, and the private organizations that build the housing. And, what I see a lot and what I've been told by other fellows who've been in this space is that a lot of times negotiations break down because the different communities, the different stakeholders don't find an agreement. And when I was a part of, of the fellowship, I felt like what I really honed in was trying to learn and become better at communicating and especially thinking about how you communicate cross-culturally or, you know, if you just have different perspectives, how can you find that common ground that'll help you reach some sort of agreement and potentially, you know, make compromises? And so I hope that I can use those leadership skills to support both the company that I'll work for, but also the government and the community to reach an agreement that works for everyone and that enables the building of, of more affordable housing. And I'm really passionate about you know, being a voice for the community within my company, because a lot of the affordable housing that that we will potentially build will actually be built in the neighborhoods where where I grew up. And so I feel like for me, just being from this, this place just means that I, you know, that I want to make sure that that people have a voice in the process and, and that I advocate within the organization for some of the demands that that the community might have of an affordable housing developer. Great. And that's a great segue into my next question, which is what role has serving others within your own community 
played in your personal life and development professionally? Definitely. I think uh, to me, it's always been like a very interesting concept. I, you know, my first, the first ever time where I kind of got, whether I came into know this idea of serving others was when I was in high school. The high school was, was a kind of religious high school where there was a requirement that every, every year you did like 50 hours of, of service. And it was a a funny concept to me because like some of the students, what they would do is they would go and, and volunteer or do service at, at like St. Vincent de Paul, which is like food pantry. And then they also provide like doctors and and health for community members and i just always remember it it was like a funny thing to me because i would go to my me and my family we would go and get our health checkups at saint vincent de paul and sometimes we would have to go and get food there too because we were very we were very low income and and it was and it was like this really weird concept where i was like whoa like i'm supposed to be like volunteering and helping others but at the same time like i need to be helping myself and my family and i just feel like i don't see this as like this idea of serving others or volunteering i just see it as being part of my family being part of my community because where i grew up we all needed to to help each other and we all needed to give tips and tricks to each other like where do you go get food you go to like saint vincent de paul saint mary's or you know there's a lot of people where i in the community where i live for example it's mostly elderly black individuals that that migrated to south phoenix in the 1960s so most of them are they're like i would say at least minimum in their 70s and so I grew up just cleaning their yards and doing a ton of chores for them because because they just needed it and they're our neighbors and and that's something that that my community did and so I feel like that's for me that's how how I see it I just see it as you know sir it's it's not like this idea of service it's just what you do as a as a human you help other people that that you see in your community that that need help and and when i got to high school it was this much more formal process of you know going to a, a location doing a couple of volunteers hours getting it signed off so that you could get credit and i feel like for me serving others comes from a different place it comes from a place where i was once in need and and people helped me and i saw them in need and i helped them because that's the way i grew up and and that's kind of the the role that i see for myself in the future is no matter what, you know, the experiences that I've had, I'm going to carry them with me and use that information that I have, that knowledge and empathy to help other people, no matter where I am. Absolutely. So Rodrigo, to close today's chat, and you've provided so much great information, and it's it's great for you to share your story and your experiences. And I'm wondering, what is one hope or outcome you would like to see for first-generation students in the future? That's a great question. And, and one, this is an experience that I had with the Immigrant Scholarship Puzzle. We would often evaluate kind of how students were doing, and we would ask them about, you know, their level of confidence with applying to college or paying for college. And we would have like this summer week-long program, and then the evaluation right after right after the program, everyone was ecstatic. They were very confident about applying to colleges. And, and then what we noticed was that over the course of the semester, once we did another evaluation, their, their confidence levels kind of 
dropped and we felt like, yeah, they're probably getting really busy. They're getting stressed out. And then they're kind of losing losing track of some of the intentions that they had set over the summer. And so one of the hopes or outcomes that I'd like to see for first-generation students is like to, to, to see students continue to believe in themselves and, and continue to take care of the intentions that they set for themselves because it's really important to have that level of confidence and motivation and to and to take care of yourself especially during this pandemic i think it's really important to take time every week and de-stress so that so that you can check in with yourself check in with all the intentions that that you are carrying and and act upon them and then you know in a in a larger context too i'm really hoping that with the new presidential administration that we could see some policy leadership that lowers the cost of college. College is way too expensive. It's getting to a point where it's very ridiculous. And I believe that. And that like that's a hope that I have in in any way, shape or form that I can. You know, I want to be an advocate for policy that lowers the cost of, of college for students of color especially. Absolutely. Yes. And that is a great, you know, forward thinking um, mission that I think we all should be committed to. So that's a great way to tie everything together. Thank you so much, Rodrigo, for being a part of this. I I greatly appreciate your experiences and your insight. So thank you again for being a part of today's episode. Thank you so much for having me, Cody. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I'm excited to to see how, how this episode turns out. As you can see, fellowships provide students with so many unique opportunities and experiences. We hope hearing the stories of these amazing individuals helps to inspire you or the first-generation student in your life to take advantage of these types of opportunities. Thank you to Ramey and Rodrigo, as well as Marish, Akisha, and Mora from the Harvard Kennedy School for your collaboration. It truly takes a village. As always, you can find us online at howtocollegefirstgen.org if you have any questions or feedback as we want to hear what you think, what you're struggling with, and how we can help. If you prefer to reach us on social media, you can find us at howtocollegefirstgen on Instagram and Facebook and htcfirstgen on Twitter. Remember, you are not alone in this journey. Until next time.